The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. That almost stops your heart You try to scream Oh, but terror takes a sound Before you make it Yeah You start to freeze As horror looks you right between your eyes You're paralyzed Cause this is thriller Thriller night And no one's gonna save you From the beast about to strike You know Fighting for your life inside up killer thriller tonight. Hey, ladies. You hear the door slam and realize there's nowhere left to run. Oh, you feel the cold hand and wonder if you'll ever see the sun. You close your eyes. Hope that this is just imagination, girl. But all the while, you hear a creature creeping up behind. Oh, you're out of time. Oh, this is thriller, thriller night, and there ain't no second chance against a thing with 40 eyes. This is thriller, thriller night. You're fighting for your life inside of. Killer, thriller tonight, oh, night creatures call and the dead start to dance in their masquerade, oh, there's no escaping the jaws of the alien this time, open oh, wide, it's the end of your life. This is Thriller, Thriller night So let me hold you tight and share up Thriller, Thriller This is Thriller, oh, Thriller tonight Girl, I can thrill you more than any fool would ever try This is Thriller, oh, Thriller tonight Girl, let me hold you tight inside of Thriller, Killer You're listening to the Electric Sheep Film Show on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, 
and this is Resonance's bi-monthly show about cult cinema from around the world. The song you've just heard was a cover of Thriller by Postmodern Jukebox featuring Wayne Brady. To cue you into the idea that tonight's show will be looking at thrillers and thrilling situations. Later in the show, I'll be talking to the legendary British B-movie director Pete Walker in a Q&A recorded at the Cine Excess Festival in Birmingham, where I'm talking to Pete about his numerous B-movies from the 1970s, such as House of Whipcord, House of the Long Shadows, and The Comeback, as well as his foray into running cinemas later in the 1980s. However, to start off with, I'm talking to Singaporean director Sandy Tan, with whom I'm discussing her movie Shirkers, a documentary that's screening now on Netflix. Shirkers is a mixture of interviews with people who were involved in making her graduate film as a student in Singapore in the 1990s, and the tale of how the film started when she was a student, was lost for 25 years, but has now been partially reconstructed giving modern viewers a contrast between parts of a city that is no longer there, with the travails of making films as a student, and everything that the director has experienced since. I thought the the film was fascinating. It's a film about a film that you can't see. So it's this strange kind of double vision, in a way, that you sort of watch the movie but at the same time you don't I guess that must be one of the things that must have fascinated you in recreating it that it has this sort of dreamlike quality yeah it, it yeah I was reunited with the footage it was um, mm. 70 reels of film 16 film and it was um, 700 minutes of footage in total wow that's a lot of footage yeah because uh, it reminded me of what an insane endeavour that whole thing was we, we shot for about like two and a half months in 1992 and it was like um, we shot at because I saw the logs I saw the the location logs we shot at over a hundred locations which nobody does I mean like nobody did then especially and especially kids you know going from place to place by bus Mm. (laughs) and George in his one car and you know maybe occasional taxi Um, that's that's a a huge endeavor Um, so watching the footage I actually remember what an insane like undertaking this whole thing was and how insane we were but you had to be a you know you had to be a a crazy teenager Mm. who's never had like anyone tell you no it's crazy and don't do this and you had you you know you had to have been just out of school Mm. and your friends within reach um, where you can kind of like coerce them into being free labor for the summer Mm. and all of us being innocent enough to think that you can and actually um, energetic enough to go into Kodak and and you know, and, and, and just beg them for little bits of film that they weren't using. Yeah. Can we play with this? And go into the the uh, you know film equipment rental houses and and say, can we you know can we play with this? I want I want, just want to learn how to use a C stand. Can you lend it mm. to us? And eventually, uh, 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 you know, assemble a huge like an arsenal of actual practical things to make a film with. Mm. Um, so I, I really I you know hats off to Sophie and Jasmine for doing this and all other friends who are not named in the film because mm. there's so many of them um, who came on board and, and watching this footage I remember what a you know what an act what a leap of faith we all took and mm. what trust they, they put in my hands um, and you know so Jasmine is still furious at me of course because she thinks that um, 
we should have been we should have waited a year she thinks and shot the whole thing in like summer when everything mm. would, would have been perfect which is you know never gonna happen was never gonna happen because when you know when you're that age the next summer is eternity um, mm. you would have made plans everybody would have dispersed and this thing would never have happened yeah. we had to seize the day and just go and run with it um, George would have been I don't know doing some other scam somewhere else <laughs> so so you know <clears throat> um, all that came flooding back to me when I was looking at the footage and I was looking at the footage in this um, in this lab in Burbank, California where I had the, the film transferred digital mm. um, digitized to um, I guess 2K so we could look at it and um, sitting next to the colorist um, working on the dailies and this is a man who um, did a lot of the he, he worked on this this is a place that does a lot of the transfers for um, Criterion Blu-rays mm. and um, I picked it because you know they knew about color and not many places know what to do with 16 or know mm. about color and um, they had done the hotel the, the Grand Hotel Budapest. Ah. They've done um, because the color of your film actually does have a kind yeah, of retro quality. Exactly. To it, so know. I thought I needed to work with a place. I mean, there are few enough places that knew what to do with sixteen, mm. and um, I need needed a place that knew what to do with color and film color, and not make everything look like it was shot on an Alexa. You know, mm. I'm sorry, it's just getting a little nerdy. But, no, no. Because um, you know, I talked to different kinds of people. Like some are super nerdy, and I can go into that, and then some are just general, and then you just don't. Um, Be as nerd as you like. Uh, sure. Really? Mm-hmm. For, for the, I thought it was for general. Okay. Well, general and specialist, you ah, know. Okay. Um, so we don't patronize the audience. Oh, right. Know. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, <laughs> I never do, but I just don't want to um, alienate anyone. So, so, like, a lot of films that's, you know, look that way now. Um, but this 16 had a very special quality. Kodak mm. 16 and a very unique um, grain and a unique, you know, there's nothing like film. Um, so we had to work with somebody who went to film. So I worked with the colorist who actually, um, you know, did the, the color for the Douglas Cirque Blu-rays as well. Mm. And those 50s films, you know, 60s films had that very, very kind of vivid palette mm. as well. And um, so he, he was watching my footage and um, and his jaw was just dropping because he, he couldn't believe the story, first of all. And he couldn't believe that this was shot in 1992 in Singapore. <laughs> and these crazy kids were doing something that... And it wound up looking to him familiar to, um, you know, independent films in the 90s in America, mm. like films that, say, Jim Jarmusch was shooting. Yeah. They all had a similar kind of quality, maybe in the color and the palette and the mm. style. It was just something that was going on in the world at that point. So watching it with him, I realized um, not just the sentimental thing of all these people I knew and the faces I knew and the faces and the places I knew, but there was something in it that was going to be universal and that could, mm. these, these images could speak to people beyond us. Yeah. And I, I felt a responsibility um, to kind of, you know, tell the story and share the work of all these people and, and share the, the performances of these remarkable actors, I mm. thought, remarkable actors, um, that would that would otherwise be lost to the world and actually had been lost to the world for 25 years. Yeah. Well, and also, um, watching the film, it feels slightly like it's an act of therapy for you mm. in order to kind of um, exercise these demons of yeah. this lost film and this lost project and also uh, repair some of the friendships that yeah. maybe you damaged over the years in between and indeed during the making of the original film. Yeah, and then damaged them some more. <laughs> but, but um, yeah, it was, um, it was therapeutic in the sense that um, it was me solving the, the, the giant jigsaw puzzle of my life Mm. Um, you know things that disappeared to a black hole and putting all the clues together again as I was editing the film over nine months um, 
it, you know, during the, the editing of the film, um, it, it was therapeutic in the sense that I was rediscovering what it was that drew me to movies. Mm. Um, the excitement I felt in wanting to be a filmmaker and feeling I could do it. And then in the process of, in the 21st century, where you can actually be making this film in your garage mm. with, an, with an unseasoned editor sitting by your side and puzzling this whole thing out. You gain a lot of confidence while doing that. It's very empowering to mm. be sitting there with software that allows you to do amazing things in your own home and feeling that you're not just the sorcerer's apprentice, you're the sorcerer now. <laughs> and um, there's something very liberating about that, that, mm. that realization. Um, and, and I rediscovered my, I guess, my, my great passion and my confidence in, in storytelling. Mm. Um, I, you know, assembled a new team of people. So it was like, there was Shirkus 1992 and then there's Shirkus 2008. Mm. And it was, um, um, oh, okay. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, um, so it was, it was, um, a new team of like, you know, finding a, um, my composer who lives in Israel mm -hmm. and I worked with him on Skype. Yeah. Which is amazing because we work really closely, but but you can do that in twenty first century. Oh, absolutely! I just mean, send the footage all, from one country yeah, to another. Yeah, and, and you telling know. the time codes and then talking yeah. on Skype and say exactly what you want. And this yeah, way. and I found this live looper in Singapore whose name is Weish. <laughs> um, this is a singer woman whose voice you hear throughout the soundtrack. Yeah. And so what he, the composer did was take her voice and sample it for his score, and so she kind of leads us on this ah. whole journey and kind of pulls the whole story through together. So, um, hmm. so it's been a so that whole process. It's almost like a reliving of Shirkus, the original, where mm. I played this character auditioning people to be in my tribe and then killing them. <laughs> uh, and this version, I'm I'm reliving it and re remaking it um, as as a as, you know worldwide, mm. like finding a new tribe mm. to tell the story and bring it back to life again. So it's kind of a a remake of a movie that was never made. Uh, and the retelling, yeah, you know, in a in a different way, and reclaiming this old story again. So that was fascinating. Yeah, were you tempted at all to actually just try and reconstruct the film as is to do ADR for the entire soundtrack? Um, or was that I just was too much tempted. of a yeah? Because first of all, uh, the ADR process of dubbing dialogue would have been very tacky. Mm. Um, spoiler, by the way. Um, <laughs> but also, I just didn't think. Um, it was going to be that mature film mm. seen in, through today's lens. Um, I think the footage lives its best life in this current version mm. of Shirkus. Um, there is a lot of talk, like a lot of people ask me whether I'm interested in putting it together again. Mm. A lot of people have volunteered their services in helping me put this Humpty Dumpty back together again. Yeah. Um, but um, it's going to be a, a huge task mm. um, and it will require a lot of volunteers because there's so much footage to go through and um, the logs are completely disorganized because mm. they were handwritten logs by Jasmine whose handwriting is is <laughs> not the most legible Yeah, and we were like you know everything was done on the fly so it would require, would require a kind of a, a team of scholars almost to kind mm. of piece this you know, detective scholars yeah. to piece this thing together and it might be fun it might be interesting it, I think it would be interesting as a silent film possibly well I was going to say because the only similar 
um, kind of situation I could think of was there was this Polish movie called On the Silver Globe by Andrzej Zawawski. Um, and he was about two-thirds of the way shooting this film. It's this kind of crazy sci-fi movie that's sort of halfway between Zardoz and Hare. Oh, wow. If you can imagine sort of thing. Um, and he was two-thirds yeah. of the way through shooting it in Poland. And the Polish authorities shut down the production and confiscated the footage. And he thought, well, that's it. Yeah. And then again, like you, he found it yeah, like ten wow. years later. I want to see this thing. So he's edited together the, the scenes that exist. And then the scenes he didn't have a chance to shoot. He just reads out the screenplay oh, with shots of contemporary yeah. Warsera. So it's a really odd way of solving it. But it yeah. was an odd film anyway. Yeah. So, you know... I I guess you could do something experimental like that yeah. should you want to yeah it's like Hodorowsky and his unmade yeah. films and all that yeah yeah um, wow yeah yeah that, that would be that would be an interesting thing and then you know the bits that are missing logically because the <laughs> script is very slightly surreal and it must be said that was the first draft that we shot mm, okay <laughs> <laughs> so it's hugely imperfect um, which is why I was very resistant to ever you know thinking about putting it together again um, there are huge holes, I think, mm. logical holes and whatnot. But as a grown-up, like we probably could be inventive and you know supplement the the footage with animation, say, mm. or even creative reenactments. Yeah. Um, using the grown-up versions of these people playing themselves. Interesting. That could be an interesting yeah, yeah. experiment. I mean, now you're putting ideas in my head <laughs> that I've never thought about before. Which is very exciting. Um, yeah. No, that that could be fun. I mean, it's interesting that it, it almost seems to have become a genre in its own right over the last 20 years, mm-hmm. kind of the rediscovery of films that were never finished. Yeah. I think the first one wow. was probably uh, Lost in La Mancha, yes. about Terry Gilliam's yeah. first attempt yeah. to make Don Quixote. Yeah. Um, there was another film around the same time called American Movie, yes. documenting the making of a low-budget yeah. horror film that didn't get finished. Yes. I think people are so fascinated now in the process of filmmaking mm-hmm that it becomes a subject in its own right. Yeah, I, I, I've never seen an American movie. Everybody keeps telling me that I should see it because it's, it's, got, it's like a, a brother of Shirkers. Yeah, um, I had, although I your film look looks a lot better. Um, yeah, I should, I should look it up. Um, but that's, that is a fascinating t- thought. And that would be great if we could all you know, band together and then have a little film festival. Of, yeah, of, of, you know, unmade film films. festival. Yeah, unmade <laughs> film festival. Uh, yeah, that's fun. I mean, the other thing that's fascinating about your movie, and which is something that you comment on mm-hmm. uh, in the voiceover, is how it's also a document of a lost time. Mm-hmm. You know, both the actual look of the city yeah. that you're filming, the way that, you know, cities evolve over time and mm-hmm. buildings disappear and mm-hmm. get replaced. Um, and also culturally, you know, you speak about how it was made at a time where Singapore was much more authoritarian, that you couldn't even chew gum, you yeah. know, without it being something you might you get arrested yeah. for, you know. Yeah, and then somebody corrected me where... They said, you can chew them, you just can't buy it, and you can't, you know, blah, blah, blah. Very <laughs> pedantic people. Um, because you're, I guess, I don't know. Um, but, but it's also like Singapore at that point, 1982, it was at um, a very specific crossroads. It was just, you know, it had to choose between a more relaxed kind of Southeast Asian regional identity as a kind of a small country and a hugely you know, ambitious economic powerhouse with global ambitions and, you know, wants to, you know, be huge, uh, beyond, you know, punch above its weight. It's always punched above its weight, but but um, it was, 1982 was a crucial time when it had to kind of choose between those two things. And of course, you know, everyone knows what route it chose. Mm. Um, you've seen Crazy Rich Asians, you've, <laughs> you've, you've um, seen the skyscrapers, you've seen the, the, the crazy um, hotels and... and and giant parks that with the you know giant trees um, 
um, yeah, so so it's just it's so it was. I was wanting to catch a world that was already disappearing the, mm. before my eyes. Like for example, all my favorite things. I mean, this was actually Trickers was like a catalog of all my favorite faces and places. Mm. Um, you know, like all these mannequin shops. I mean, like, there was so many mannequin shops. Like, what is that <laughs> about? Um, and all these, you know. Buildings like 50s style buildings or 30s style buildings that were soon to be destroyed. Mm. Um, we George was really architecturally interested in Singapore because he's mm. he's an architectural photographer as well. So um, I was very like interested in capturing all these things that meant something to me. Probably mm. because I was studying abroad in England, and um, you know I, I just felt like these things. Every time I went back, things were disappearing. So I had to capture them. And I had to capture the people I thought were actually getting older or growing up so in terms of my baby cousin playing my baby cousin mm. she was so cute and I had to capture that and my grandmother was you know my grandmother was just getting older and all these um, fascinating place, faces that we thought would never be in a conventional film in Singapore let's capture them and let's mm. make them mythic and that was my whole idea is to kind of make this tiny insignificant slightly boring place seem mythic and special mm. and kind of it's my the way I saw Singapore was you know not the way it's being presented in yeah. tourist brochures or anything else and I just wanted to share that world with other people in Singapore and let them see themselves in a different way mm. and obviously you know you're a different person now mm. you know, obviously mm. to the person who made the film back then but also you became a professional film critic mm-hmm. in the meantime and as such, you know, in, in the making of the making of Shirkers, you talk about your influences at the time, such as New Wave film. Mm. But it feels that also you are kind of examining yourself in terms of a filmmaker in making this movie. Yeah. Oh, perhaps I took this unconsciously from this and perhaps I took this unconsciously from yeah. that, which is quite a fascinating thing to watch, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, because it was, I was, it was like um, the film also charts my thinking process mm. and I just tried to... It's a document of my thinking process, of a document of a person's um, growing as they're making the film as well. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, I had film, being a film critic was the closest I could get to to film without being able to make films at that point. Mm. And so, because nobody was doing that in Singapore, you know. And and, and after going through the heartbreak of having one thing taken away, um, you know, I, I I sought refuge in in, in films mm. through you know as a film critic rather than a filmmaker um yeah uh, what was it what was it well just that as a film critic yeah. you can now kind of examine your own yeah. film from yeah. the lens of being a film critic yeah. which is quite and a fascinating as, thing as to an, do as an older person as well yeah. um just looking back and seeing um what it was that you know formed me and mm. and what it was that actually formed george because mm. george is such a I, he wasn't really a person, you know. Like he is—he's such a a, a, a self-created um, mythological creature, mm. as somebody told me. Um, and he's a composite of all his favorite characters, mm. and they weren't even nice characters or mm. heroic characters. They were interesting characters. I thought it was fascinating how obsessed he was with um, the Steven Soderbergh. James Spader and yeah, sex, sex lies, lies and videos because that's not exactly anyone's idea of a hero. No, hero. <laughs> you know, to, to to use that as the person that you claim was based on you mm. is very telling of George, but also makes him incredibly fascinating because he knows that he's not, you know, 
nice or or heroic or in a conventional yeah. way. I've dealt with the most sinister already, so everyone else is fine. I mean, through you know, you, you speak about George, and he, he's such a fascinating character in the film to go from being your mentor to being your de facto producer and then becoming your nemesis by yeah. stealing your film. Were you tempted, was there any possibility in the intervening years before your film reappeared of using a private detective or something to try and track him down? Or did you feel actually that stage of my life is over and I need to just kind of get on with my life? Yeah, I mean, in the days like of the early 90s when this whole thing happened, it was really hard to... Mm. There was no internet, right? I mean, yeah. it really hardly existed. Um, and me, Sophie, and Jasmine were all living in different cities in the world. Mm. We were actually broken by this whole experience, and it was very hard to unite and and fight this one nemesis together. Mm. He knew that. I mean, he he knew how to kind of split us up. Mm. And um, you know, after one year, two years of trying to to pursue him and get this thing back, you know, you just so your heart is so broken, your spirit is so broken, you don't want to have this invade and haunt your life forever. Mm. You know, like, it's intense enough as it was, um, and embarrassing as it was, because you have everybody, you're growing up around you saying, I told you so, why were you hanging out with him? Mm. Uh, and you're all your friends, and all these people who would volunteer their services and Kodak, like, you know, like, to pursue this is to kind of admit to our failure, yeah. to our being duped, and taking all these other people along with us and having to apologize and um, we just kind of we, I don't think um, we had ever explained to a lot of these actors what happened nobody knew Yeah. it's just like we vanished the mm. whole thing and it was only like years later like even when this film when this film finally came about that I got back in touch with the woman who played the nurse mm. and she didn't she didn't know what happened she just you know she gave her time and she gave a great performance, wanted to be an actress, had that stolen away from her, thought, okay, nothing happened and this was a dream and mm. these were all kids and conned her or something. And um, finally, you know, told her what happened and she showed up at Sundance, <laughs> surprising us. She came to one of our, our screenings at Sundance this year and, um, you know, saw the film for the first time and was in tears because um, it all came, you know, flooding back. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the film unpacks all of the emotions and trauma and then relief that you went through in making the film and then refinding it. Has that reinvigorated you in being a filmmaker? Does it fit, do you feel now that you can make other yeah. movies? You know? Yeah, very much so. I mean, this whole process, um, the most therapeutic part of it was just like learning that I can do this again mm. and just rediscovering and re, you know, Rediscovering my voice, I guess, um, regaining my voice and and confidence, and in the process, like of making this film, as you see me, kind of piece this puzzle together, and I'm, mm. you know, not only is the story whole, I'm whole again in some ways, and I think, I hope, uh, and <laughs> and you know, I'm moving on to to do more things, yeah, because you know, making up for lost time. I mean, there's nothing like, like, you know, feeling like you're older and. And, um, you know, having lost years to make you want to quickly hurry up and do things. Mm, indeed. And any thoughts of what projects you might like to do? Um, yeah, I'm working on a few things. They're just, you know, too early to talk about. Okay. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, 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 I'm talking to a bunch of people about a bunch of things. That's what I usually <laughs> say. Because, it, you know, if, if one was to classify uh, 
a, a genre perhaps of filmmaking that you've approached so far it's ambiguity mm-hmm. because you talk about shirkers the original shirkers being a horror movie no i never do oh okay because I, I, I don't know where people got that ah, from from okay just like one huh. one review called it a feminist slasher flick um the in indie wire and i'm like furious like there's no slashing there's no knives like what is this i mean it's not even feminist it's just girls making mm. film but um there's no horror i mean there's no horror this might be surreal mm. but i don't see the horror some people call it science fiction because people seem to disappear yeah that's maybe closer but um certainly not horror okay um but I'm flattered by that because it's, <laughs> it's catchier and it makes it sound cooler and more intriguing but I'm curious to know what you've you, well, but, well I, I, only because yeah. you know I read uh, a similar review before watching it, and mm. then I was trying to work out by watching the footage. This doesn't seem like a horror film no. to me. And so is this because? And I thought maybe it's oh. because you'd chosen not no. to show the horror scenes from the original movie. No, it was like <laughs> well, that's fascinating. It was, it was bloodless um, imaginary shooting with my handgun. Yeah, yeah, and a bit um, of kind of witchcraft with your grandmother and. And, yeah. and at worst, there's the scene where you and uh, the other character are walking along other sides of the street, and then he inadvertently oh, yeah. walks across and gets yeah. run over. Again, maybe there's some sort of hint of a curse going on. Maybe. But, th- but then maybe that's me projecting yeah, a desire to see a horror film where exactly. there isn't one. You know? That's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting why somebody said slasher film, and there was not a single knife in the film, not a <laughs> drop of blood. But uh, maybe because he got confused with Steve, um, the other character who made mm. a slasher film. Uh, you know, like okay. the the guy who's who George's protege from the New mm. Orleans. Yeah, that guy made a slasher film, as it got conflated in the review. But um, no, I, it wasn't a horror film. I find it fascinating and, and very amusing that people are saying horror. Mm. So I'm always curious. So that's why I'm interviewing you. About <laughs> that. Well, let's say magical realism then. Yes, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> but that's yeah. Okay. Cool. Thank you Thank very you much. So much. Yeah, my really pleasure. Fun. Shirkers, a documentary by Sandy Tan, is available to watch now on Netflix and is a fantastic documentary which mixes archival footage, interviews and an intriguing tale of filmmaking from aspiration to disaster and eventual reconstruction. To play out the first half of the show, here's a track which is featured prominently on the soundtrack of Shirkers, Tick Tick by Weish. Wait and 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 wait and
waiting, 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 Posing with a cigarette and hoping someone will call my name. I peer over pages that passes by. Am I waiting for you or someone new to mend my broken heart? My broken heart. The track you've just heard was featured throughout the movie Shirkers, a terrific new documentary showing on Netflix and is called Tick Tick by Weish. Coming up in the second half of the show, I'm talking to British B-movie director Pete Walker. Pete's best known for his unofficial trilogy of movies, House of Whipcord, House of Mortal Sin and House of the Long Shadows, made between 1974 and 1983, the BFI-released British-based thriller Man of Violence, and other gory slasher movies such as Die Screaming Marianne and The Comeback, otherwise known as Encore. I'm talking to the director about his career in making B-movies, his subsequent years in running cinemas, and the interview was recorded at the Cine Excess Festival. I watched uh, The Comeback, Encore, via Amazon Prime, and it looks like they've just ripped an old VHS copy of it. Yeah. I couldn't believe it, you know, four by three. It's even got tracking marks on it. How does that enter circulation? I mean, presumably you don't get approached when they make these new prints, or maybe some of the better companies well, but, let but, you know. I mean, maybe, maybe they're just pirate prints. They, re, they remastered them all in America, you mm. know, and hopefully they, they got a, a, a print from the new master to, to show tonight. Mm. Um, or House of the Long Shadow. Indeed. I mean, these days, mm. they're all properly licensed. Yeah. That, you know, and, and they are all taken from the, uh, you know, they're all taken from the, uh, from the new HD masters. Mm. Did they, at least when they made those masters, invite you to supervise the prints at all? No. Okay. I, mean, I, I don't need to do that. No, I, I okay. Because really they, they take them from the original negative. Right, And okay. they, were done, they were done in America, where, you know, where I was. And I, I mean, I spend three or four months a year in California yeah. because I have a home there. Um, and, uh, you know, it, but, but no, I don't, I don't have, have anything to do with that. Okay. It is interesting. I mean, if we look at the way that your films have been released in recent years, there's this lovely coffin-shaped yes, DVD again, box set. Not, not particularly good uh, copies. No. Yeah. Yes, so that, was, that was a bit of fun, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, but this, I mean, it felt that this was something that really kind of brought you back to people's attention. You know, did you feel that yes, there when, was... When was that? That was about uh, 15 about, years ago. Yeah, 10 it? years ago, maybe 2005. Two, oh, OK, 13 yeah. years. 13 years. Did you think it was enthusiasts at a video com- uh, company thought, 
let's do a, a Walker box set. Did they get in touch with you? Or? Oh yes, no, that was all. Yeah, no, that was all properly licensed and, mm. and, and, and done through my agent and, right. and, and stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I I don't know whether I think it was probably before the box set, but uh, I mean that uh, that 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 there was a resurgence of interest in, mm. in, in my movies. I think it goes back I mean, a lot, lot longer. So I guess it's one of these sort of things that snowballs. There's a bit of an interest in your work and then someone brings out a box set and then there's even more of an interest and so it kind of gains momentum. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know. It seems to have just crept up over the, over, over the years, you know, mm. much to my surprise and, uh, and embarrassment sometimes. Oh. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, um, particularly when, you know, everything changes. I mean, mm. when... when um, when we first brought these uh, films out, you know, they were made as exploitation movies. And they sure. Were made, uh, and the whole purpose, really, was for me to get to try and get everybody at it. And so I think uh, Steve yeah. Chibnall, when he did that book, and that's 20 years ago now, um, uh, Steve uh, said I was making mischief, and that's exactly what, you know, we, uh, what I was intending to do. Because right? mm. that was the only way you could get publicity. If you got everybody up, wound up, you know... And, mm. Anyway, <laughs> but I mean, it's interesting. We're, we're talking at Cine Excess, which is obviously a conference that celebrates cult cinema. But something that I think Xavier has always done with Cine Excess is not only say look at films because they're enjoyable, because they're controversial, whatever, but actually look at how they were ways of making money. And it felt that with your films, you know, um, you can you can definitely appreciate them for doing interesting things, for doing exciting things. But it felt that you were very much thinking about them in terms of how can these uh, products make money as of well. That, that, that's, but, but let's not fool ourselves. That's what everybody does. I mean, you know, it doesn't matter what film you're making. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they're only done to make money. You know, they're not, uh, they don't say, oh, well, you know, I'm going to make this film. It's going to cost, you know, $20, $20 million <laughs> to make. And I don't care whether we, whether we get the money back. You know, he, he may not care whether he gets <laughs> the money back, but the, the backers do. Mm. Uh, so everything is made with the idea of, oh, maybe this will win an Oscar, <coughs> you know, if it's going to be there. And then, you know, that'll have the spin-off of... Uh, mm. But everything's done. I mean, it's a business. Yeah. But I guess in terms of, you know, looking at British cinema in the 1970s, at films that were, inverted commas, guaranteed to make money, I guess films that had a bit of titillation, that had a bit of violence, had maybe a bankable star being in a role that was unusual for them, were those the sort of things that you felt were definitely ideas that would make money and I'm going to do the best with those kind of, you know, uh, filmmaking tropes? Well, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't at that level, was I? Okay. Well, I, I mean, looking at the films you made, though, it felt like those are the kind of ideas you were toying with. Well, no, I mean, I, th- the, 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 I mean, back in the back in the late sixties and seventies, when I w- when I was making these uh, prolific uh, movies, you know, they were still there were still bankable stars. There were mm. stars still, you know, you'd have a John Mills picture, even, you know, and that's what they expected. They were Richard Todd or, hmm. or John Mills, you know, to go and make these movies. And, 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 and people went and saw those kind of films. John Wayne, I mean, people, mm. you know, people would go and see a John Wayne film because they knew they were going to see some action and some punch-ups and some, you know... Uh, uh, whereas we had to find gimmicks, you know, you had mm. to have some, some coat hanger to... To, um, to to do it. I mean, you know, with, with, with 
House of Whitcourt, for example. Yeah. You know, the, the idea that I, 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 that poster, the English poster, which I thought was very good, was what I, I envisaged that poster before I even got the idea for the film. And then I wrote the story mm. based on the idea of that. that you know, I, I started with the idea of having a woman's prison picture, and then, mm. uh, and then it developed into much more of a, uh, uh, you know, an offbeat kind of. Uh, thing and that's really what, what, what one wanted to do you weren't you didn't have a and you thought it was going to just be the the fact that it was going to be offbeat and people were going to say oh this is disgraceful this is disgusting <laughs> which they did in those days because there were you know there were more morals mm. and now everything just hangs out and there's such, <laughs> such thing as exploitation mm. but i mean obviously you know a bit of sex and violence and a bankable star uh helps a film to make money yeah. but it felt that you well, also I, I never had the bankable star Okay, but you had you know people who were recognisable by name, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it did feel that you also brought a level of subversion to the kind of films you made. You know, making say a priest, uh, you know, the villain. You know, people who are respected figures of authority well, in society. That's the whole idea. Yes, yeah. and that was the theme really that ran through the whole of, of of my films. And I suppose that's really the reason people now look at them and remember them. Mm. Um, you know, I think if, if if they hadn't had that kind of quality, I mean, they'd have been forgotten, and so would I. Yeah. So when it came to the scripts for your films, how would they be developed? I mean, obviously, uh, you had different screenwriters that you worked with, but because there were certain kind of themes that you liked to make movies about, would you start off with a discussion saying, um, you know, I've not done a movie yet where this kind of character has been a villain, can we turn that into a script? I don't think it quite quite worked that way. I think I would get an idea, you know, as I say, I would get an idea for a, mm. for, 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 for a film, and then I would I would kick it around. I mean, the, uh, for, for a, 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 a quite a good productive period, there was one guy, David McGillivray, that mm. I worked with, um, and we had a very very good rapport. Forget mm. that, you know, I'd have an idea, as I say, and I'd. I'd uh, David didn't do story. He, did, he was very good, you know. He was young. He was very young. He was starting in the business. And so I used to have to do the story and the construction of it, uh, and then he would develop it, develop the characters, and, and write them. And it worked very well between us. Mm. Um, but um, uh, I, cer- cer- certainly, that's the way that I generally worked. Mm. You know, um, with uh, I never. Um, most a lot of directors, you know, wait until a, something comes to them. I never did that. You mm. know, I always started it myself, and, and as I always say, you know, I used to start with a blank sheet of paper. Yeah. You know, so I'm going to make a film. Well, what am I going to make it about? Oh, you know, it's a blank sheet of paper. Well, you know, and that's how, how, where, it would, where it would literally come from there. Mm. Um, you're a Brightonian. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, I, when I was watching um, the comeback, I did wonder if that was Brighton, where he takes, um, where he takes uh, um, Pamela, Stevenson. Pamela yeah. Stevenson out on a date. And there's, I think, one of your films is entirely shot in Brighton. I've not watched yes. it yet, but I think it's the big switch. Yes, which comes with Man of Violence and the yeah. BFI yeah. release. Well, also, uh, also the. I mean, have you got connections to Brighton? I yeah, live and work there. So, oh, you and, do? and was born there. So oh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, no, the, the, the best Brighton one, the best Brighton one, is probably the Flesh and Blood show. Ah, uh, no, I haven't yet. Okay. Ah, the Flesh and Blood show, yes, that was all done on the. Well, no, actually, it probably isn't, because if you just want bits of Brighton that you want to capture, 
then it, then it is the, the, the big switch. If you've got to sit through that film, it's a dreadful film. But, but if you want to sit through it, there's there's the West Pier. Mm. There's the whole West oh. Pier in full glory. Wow. In full glory with all its arcade machines going and the ghost train going. I mean, that was all done on the West, on the on the Brighton West Pier. Nice. <laughs> um, and as I say, if you if you if, if you're just treating it as a, 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 a documentary, a, you know, a, a travelogue, uh, terrific. But uh, but I mean, actually, that is. I mean, I was going to talk about location in your films in general, but before we get to that some of these films are just lovely to watch because you see a place that you know and love, but how it was 40 years ago. It's a, kind of a shock to the system, the, you know, the changes that you oh, see. Oh, yeah, but, and, that, the, you know. but that's, the, that's the whole attraction as, for filmmaking. I mean, mm. I don't know... Are you, do you aspire to make making films? Uh, I think I'm probably more of a critic than a maker, but I, I, I did go to film school, so, you know, yeah. I've dabbled. Why? Why do you want to be a critic and not a filmmaker? Oh, I don't know. It was too much like hard work, you know. Um, tell me about it. <laughs> well, tell, t- me about tell me about it, about it Peter. That's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, um, so, sorry, now we, what was the question? Um, well, I was, so I was going to ask you about location. Um, it's interesting that in certain of your films the location is incredibly important to the plot and the atmosphere, whether it's the kind of creepy church in um, uh, House of Mortal Sin, whether it's the apartment and uh, the other locations in the comeback, the the house and the the, the countryside. How much of that came about once the script had been written, or did sometimes you find an amazing location and think, can we work this into the script? No, no, it was was really the right way around. I mean, I would do this, and I'd say, how can I spark this up? I've got to put a good, good, like, like for example, in the comeback, I I thought, we can't just have an ordinary apartment. It's got to be something different he's got a you know it's, it's, it's going to be like a warehouse that he goes mm. up to and it's, it's going to be funky I mean you know, <laughs> he's the guy who's supposed to be a singer I mean I know he was middle of the road dear old Jack but I mean uh, you know I used to uh, think uh, we've, we've got to give it you know it'll, it'll give it that kind of funky sparkle mm. you know something, yeah. something a little different that's why it's done and you were ahead of your time because loads of people want to live in those kind of, those uh, kind of apartment <laughs> you know, converted warehouses yes. these days. So that would then, I guess, you know, mean a location scout would have to be hired and you'd need to find a location no, like I that. I used to do it all myself. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. Driving around, yes. you know. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. You know, that's, this, is a whole other, this is a whole other interview, I can say. No, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. No, no, no that's, this is a whole, a whole other interview. You know, with you, to go, finding locations was, uh, I mean, particularly the House of, uh, house of Whipcock, you know, mm. finding a jail. I mean, there's a, I mean, one guy wrote a book about it, you know, the search for it. I mean, it was hmm. just uh, unbelievable. But, mm. but, but somehow it just fell into place in the end. Have you seen House of Woodcock? Uh, it's on my to-do list. I'm working my way through your coffin, for want of a better phrase. <laughs> well, House of Whipcord on this, you won't mm. be able to see properly because it's so dark. Oh, that's a shame. You know, and, it was, and it was so beautifully photographed originally. It's okay. such a pity. But you, but, you know, that you can get good prints, you can, mm. you know, but they're American, I'm afraid. Yeah. Mm. Although, I mean, you know... We were talking about how dismal uh, the print on Amazon is, for example, of um, Comeback. You then get something like the BFI releasing uh, an all uh, bells Man and of, whistles Man Blu-ray of Man, Man of Violence. Yeah. Does that surprise you? Which of your films get chosen for that kind well, of? Well, they chose that film because they the, 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 the attraction, I think, of, of making films, particularly for me, you know, as a film buff, rather than mm. the way that you're a film buff, aren't yeah. you? Um, was that? You capture a whole period. I mean, mm. Man of Violence was made in 1969. Mm. 
Uh, what are we talking about? We're talking 58 years ago. Yeah, 50. 50 years ago. 50, 50 years ago. Yeah. Sorry, 50 <laughs> years ago. Um, and it's captured a whole period of time and a whole attitude. Mm. You know, time, time's different. I mean, you look at some of these films and you, you, you look now and you think, oh my God, and I, I bury myself under the chair because, you know, they're embarrassing, they're naive. But they weren't then. Mm. You know, Man of Violence was a very hard-hitting mm. movie. I, yeah. mean, I, I remember when it came out, the, 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 the uh, critics you know, were just going, you know, this, this is pornographic, <laughs> this is, this is the, uh, disgusting. This is, I mean, uh, Alexander Walker, you know, mm. who, was, who was the doyen of critics yeah. uh, for the Evening Standard, you know, said, this film is liable, if not, li- no, likely, if not, no, what did he say? <laughs> this film is liable, if not calculated to corrupt. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was a criminal. I'd take that as a compliment. (laughs) In a backhanded way, you do. Yeah. But when when everything is levelled at you like that, which is what it it used to be in those days. Mm. So you're making films uh, with relatively low budget. You're surrounded by, you know, other passionate young people who want to do the best they can. Um, What was it like working with Michael Pickwood back then? Because he, unfortunately, passed away this year. Yes, bless him, he did, didn't he? Why, I wonder? What, what was wrong? Did he have cancer or something? Was it, six six years of Doctor Who, I think, would kill anyone. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what he did? Yes. Did he do six years of Doctor Who? <coughs> no, Mike was terrific. But Mike was starting out then. And, mm. uh, and he, was, he was the part... He was exactly my kind of man. You know? mm. For example, again, I quote uh, uh, House of Whipcord, he was... Um, you know, we found this with this, this abandoned uh, Salvation Army hostel huge place, morbid, you know, really awful, awful place. And Mike just tarted it up, you know, mm. made it look even worse, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and that was his skill to find something that was good and make it even better. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know you all... We're slowly gaining an audience, it's quite fun. Um, your last film, which indeed is being shown at Cine Access because it's kind of the collaboration between you and Victoria Price's uh, father, yeah. was um, House of the Long Shadows. Yeah. How did you assemble that incredible cast? Uh, well, um, it was it was it assembled the incredible cast or no movie. Right. I mean, you, you know, the, 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 the whole idea of... of House of the Long Shadows was that I got this phone call. I mean, I was, I was uh, retired. Mm. I retired at the age of forty, and and I, I was ret- I, I was retired, and I got this call from Menachem Golan, who I knew mm. uh, from way back, and he said, "Oh, Peter, you're, come, come along and see me. We are we are we are doing pictures. I've got Michael Wiener doing uh, the Wicked Lady, and I've got uh, Brian Forbes doing something. I can't remember." And I want you to do a picture. Then, with three pictures, we're going to start. We're going to start this wonderful company. You see, so uh, I mean, when somebody says that, you uh, <coughs> off you, you, you and I went and saw in this static place up in Water Street. Mm. Um, and he said, "I want the horror picture. <laughs> uh, you, the, 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 you are the horror picture man." And I said, "Well, yeah." And and I had actually a very good script called. Deliver Us From Evil, which Michael Mm. Armstrong, whom you know and love, I'm sure, Mm. uh, wrote. 
and it was, well, it was quite good and it was a real sort of Pete Walker picture you know mm. it was sort of nasty and controversial and uh, uh, you know sort of uh, everybody would, uh, would, would get, get up in arms about it it was about mm. an aborted fetus um, that came back to claim its life right <laughs> so anyway uh, they didn't they, 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 then I can poke a face and I don't want that die, right? <laughs> I, want, I want big horror people, I want big horror stars, you see. Well, the only big horror stars were, you know, Vinny and Christopher and Peter. And mm. uh, So the first thing, I, I thought, well, if I, if I get Vinny, mm. then I'll get the rest, you know. Mm. So, strangely enough, one of my best friends is a Hollywood director, a Hollywood uh, uh, agent. Mm. And I called him and said, Vincent Price, can you get me? He said, oh, he's our client. So, done. (laughs) Done, you know. Um, And uh, the next, um, the the next time I I spoke to uh, old Steve Benny, and he he said, you know, terrific, you know, uh, know, I didn't have a script at the time. Mm. And I said, well, so it was all rather vague. Um, but I, I knew that there was I could I could probably do something and uh, mm. anyway that's that's what happened I mean you once you once you've got one you could get mm. then you could get Christopher and then you could you could get Peter mm. you know I knew Peter Peter wanted to do um, the House of uh, Mortal Sin okay originally but huh. but he was he was contracted by Star Wars so uh, yeah. But yeah, I know. I know he he really wanted to do that. Hmm. And it was quite a famous play that you adapted for that. <coughs> well, was, yeah, but it, it didn't mean anything. I mean, no, it was it was it was just really you just. I mean, I I had the idea of perhaps doing the old dark house, and then I couldn't get it because the the, the, the the rights were still with Universal, I think. Mm. And uh, so I thought we should have we should have some famous mm. play with it. That mm. wasn't going to be too expensive because it was okay. still a budget movie. So we, I, I, I thought, you know, seven keys to bald paint, but mm. but it, 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 it had no uh, cachet. Ca- ca- no, it had no I, uh, connection at all okay. with, with the actual film. Really. Just, except except the fact that it was um, a gag. Yeah. But I wonder if that was one of the things that was appealing to those kind of um, doyens of horror cinema, that it was a lot more playful than some of the other stuff they did, that it's a story within a story within a story, and you don't know really what's going on at any kind of point. Well, that was me, I'm afraid. Okay. And, and, I, and, I, took, and I took, the, I took the, all the flat for it. I mean, really? Yeah, every, okay. Oh, yeah, everybody hated that. I mean, you know, every, well, not everybody. They either liked it or they didn't like it. It mm. was, you know, Marmite. Right, you know they either they either said, "Oh, this is, how do you how can you do this? You can't have two, three different twist endings." You know, but uh, you know, I did it, um, as I always do. You know. <laughs> and then you retired from cinema. Yeah. Um, well, I didn't you retire just, from cinema. Well, for making, making films. yes, and then I started to no. like, restore. I, I, no, I bought. Uh, I had I had the largest independent. Cinema chain in, in England. Oh wow! Okay, um, so it had just become too much of a, a chore to work within the industry. I didn't. Uh, I didn't. I, I'd, I'd had enough actually. Okay. It was too, it was, it was, like you said, it's too much like hard work, and it was mm. too much like hard work. But distribution was enough to kind of keep your creative juices flowing. It wasn't in distribution. 
well, I mean, when you're running a cinema, you know, chain, it's kind of like showing films and deciding yeah, what show, is shown. shown and, films. And, yeah, but you know. I mean, that was a different thing. It was, actually, it was more of a property thing. I owned okay. all the theatres, you know, I owned all the properties. Um, and, uh, no, it was, it, you know, I had, I had 300 staff on, you know, so it was a, it was a business. Yeah. And I, th- and I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. I did it for 15 years and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'd okay. still be doing it if it weren't for Multiplex. Mm. You know, Multiplex has killed us. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, at, at the moment, there's a debate about an independent cinema in London, the Phoenix, that people have passionately stopped it being bought up by a chain. Was that the sort of battle that you had to deal with at the time, that, you know, a lovely local cinema that someone wants to snap up? Um, well, not really, because, because there were more of them. I mean, okay. there, was, there was still those town centre cinemas, that, uh, and it was getting the right ones and getting the ones that were, that were, that were not going to be swamped by you know, a 15-screen multiplex. Mm. Um, you know, I didn't think that anyone would ever put a 15-screen multiplex on the Isle of Wight, you know, because we controlled the Isle of Wight. I had two cinemas there, two, you know, two of the originals. In fact, I opened the, the, uh, a cinema that had been closed down for 15 years. Mm. Um, enormous place. I mean, uh, it was... Um, but uh, I never thought that they'd have... Uh, you know, multiplexes on the other way, but they did. And mm. I didn't think they would at Weymouth, and they did. Mm. Did you have any say in the programming of the cinemas that you ran, or were you just happy to keep no, them... I did, all the, to... I did all the programming. Oh, wow. So well, based... I mean, actually, it, 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 you, 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 all you had was the, the latest releases. Okay. You know, and, and they always timed them, you know. They, so, so it was... I did have a book up. So you, you didn't sneak any of your own films in occasionally for retrospectives? No, <laughs> no, no, I wanted to make money. I didn't want to get... I wouldn't subject any of, uh, <laughs> of my audiences with, to put my own movies in. Oh. Yeah. Well, Pete Walker, thank you very much. Okay. A variety of Pete Walker's films are available on DVD and Blu-ray. These include Give Us Tomorrow, House of Whipcord, House of Mortal Sin, The Flesh and Blood Show, Die Screaming Marianne, and the BFI Double Bill of Man of Violence and The Big Switch. Second-hand copies of the coffin-shaped DVD box set, which includes The Comeback, House of Mortal Sin, House of Whipcord, Frightmare and Die Screaming Marianne, are available from second-hand retailers on Amazon and elsewhere, and a German Blu-ray of House of the Long Shadows, featuring Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing and Vincent Price, is available on Amazon Germany, and from other importers. And if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, then you can watch Encore, a.k.a. The Comeback, for free. But as I mentioned at the start of my interview with Pete, it looks like Amazon have just ripped the old VHS copy, so it's only worth watching if you'd like to see one of his films the way that many audiences did at the start of the mass hysteria about video nasties at the beginning of the 1980s. The interview was recorded at the Cine Excess Festival, an annual event in Birmingham which combines screenings of classic and new cult movies, talks by filmmakers such as Pete Walker and this year's other special guest, Vincent Price's daughter, Victoria Price, academic talks about cult cinema and much more. You can find more information about Cine Excess by going to cine, C-I-N-E, dash, excess, 
The Electric Sheep Film Show was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. You can find more information about Electric Sheep Magazine by going to electricsheepmagazine.co.uk and you can find all previous episodes of the Electric Sheep Film Show on my blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com. The next episode of the Electric Sheep Film Show will be on the third Wednesday in January, and in this slot, on the third Wednesday in December, is the next episode of Audio Dramatics, the bi-monthly show looking at the production of audio and radio dramas. As many of Pete Walker's films are about creepy houses and scandal, here's Joan Baez with House of the Rising Sun. Thanks for listening. This programme was brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. Visit our website at resonancefm.com to hear our vast range of original 24-7 broadcasts. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.